Hey everybody, Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and it is our privilege to have with us Regina Phelps, who is the founder and CEO of EMS Solutions. Good morning. Good morning, Craig. How are you? Incredibly amazing. Good to see you. I know you're really busy. So um, thanks for being with us. Why don't you tell us just, just in a summary for introduction, what it is you do and your company? Sure, great. Uh, I'm the CEO of, C of EMS Solutions, Emergency Management and Safety Solutions. We've been in practice since 1982, so 38 plus years. Um, we primarily are a full service continuity consulting company, but my area of expertise and where I spend most of my time is in exercise design, uh, as well as crisis management team development. And then I've been a pandemic planner since 1997. So since January of last year, we've supported about 300 companies around the world working through the COVID pandemic. Wow. That's a big number. Yeah, it is a big number. We've been really busy. <laughs> I'm really happy that at least it's getting better here in the United States. I feel very sorry for so many of my friends and colleagues around the world that are still suffering until they get a vaccine. So hopefully soon. Yeah, it's tough times out there, but um, what you do obviously really does make a difference for companies, particularly those who don't have their own emergency management or continuity team. So why don't you tell us some of the things that you're doing to help different companies in that area? Well, it really depends. I mean, some of our clients, so going back to January, some of our clients reached out to us and had a pandemic plan, but had never really exercised it or for that matter, thought they'd ever have to use it. So it was like, oh my gosh, you know, what do I do to this? And it's not very helpful and so on and so on. Uh, other people had a pandemic plan and actually were familiar with it. But I will say to you, um, in all the plans that we've written, maybe close to a thousand since 1997, at that time, we never expected that we could just close an office and it would go home and everything would work. So even people with ha that had plans, there was a lot of, of course, as we all know in the profession, uh, really creating it on the fly. And I think it, you know, looking back at the pandemic and thinking about really the amazing work that not only continuity professionals, emergency managers, but technology departments did in order to make it possible for all of those people to be able to work from home safely. Granted, there are many people in the field of government, in particular in emergency management, they did not have that privilege of being able to stay home, but many folks did. And so I think there's a big shout out to everybody in our profession for the great work they did in order to make it possible for businesses to continue and a large number of people to remain home and be safe. Hmm. In recent times and in New Zealand as well, um, it's it's become more prevalent and more important to think about cybersecurity and the impact of being, wow, being hacked and ransomware and things like that. Why don't you tell us what you do in that regard, in sure. cybersecurity? Sure. So I'm not a cybersecurity professional, nor am I a technology professional. But what I am a, an expert in is two things, crisis management, as well as exercise design. So for a lot of our companies, of course, uh, now that the pandemic dust, at least in North America, has cleared a bit, uh, the movement and the thoughts are all about ransomware for all the reasons, of course, that all of our listeners would know. And certainly when you look at what's happened with uh, the huge uh, ransoms that have been paid here in the United States, uh, you know, 11 million, 4.4 million. Uh, one of our clients paid a high of 22 million wow. for a ransom. And so if you ask any executive what their number one fear is, it's a ransomware attack. And then when I asked them, well, really, what does that mean? Then right behind that, their biggest concern is fear, uh, fear of reputation and brand damage. And so when we design exercises, um, 
I designed probably a hundred large exercises a year for large multinational corporations. I started designing cyber exercises about eight years ago. <clears throat> and uh, we have a very unique way of actually approaching them, but our, our, our real desire is to make it realistic, to make it really specific. And I think uh, my goal, as I always say to my clients, is to make you want to cry at the end. Not in a bad way, but because that's really that's really how they learn. And and the reason I, I say that is because many of your listeners may design exercises. And of course, the the desire always in an exercise is that you you have a great experience. And even though it's awful, you know, at the end, you've kind of wrapped it up and you put a bow on it, or at least people felt like they had some hand over it, right? I mean, they were actually making progress. I advise people that are doing cyber exercises to never have that be the case. Because certainly in a cyber exercise, the key thing to keep in mind is that with the, the amount of forensics that it will take, the amount of recovery, uh, being able to get your systems back up and operational, you know, if you're lucky, it could be a few days. If you're not lucky, it could be a month or more. And it doesn't go mm -hmm. away quickly. And so if you do an exercise, and even if it's really bad, but you kind of advance the clock until all of a sudden systems are available, I tell you what will happen. People will walk out of that room and they're going to think, okay, it was bad, but not that bad. And I want them to think like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. Because Craig, if you open up any continuity plan, any crisis management plan, and probably a crisis communications plan, there is rarely any notations for long sustained technology outages. And so mm -hmm. they're assuming in a plan, you're gonna get it back in two or three days or maybe a little longer, but not a month or longer. And mm -hmm. we've had that happen in some of our large clients. So what I would say to you is that the best gift you can give your company is to make them wanna cry at the end because every executive is gonna be super excited about putting whatever they need to behind having the best possible exercise and recovery strategies and technology methodologies uh, that you need in order to be able to sustain an environment in this in this day and age with technology uh, interruptions as we're seeing them all the time. You know, you keep saying um, exercises for those that are not in the industry. They may be like me thinking of World War Z and trying to make that happen. So, what do you do when you do an exercise with a company? That's a great question. So, um, so there are five types of exercises. So just to take them off for your listeners, if they're not familiar, the first one is an orientation exercise. That's a brief exercise. Uh, you know, it's driven by slides for the most part, and it tells a story. And think about it, an exercise as a story. I drop you into the first chapter of a book or a play or a movie or something like that, and your team has to figure out what to do. So just keep that in kind of the, your mind. So an orientation exercise is really simple and basic, and it gets them oriented to their job or to a plan. The next level of an exercise is called a tabletop, of which there's two kinds, a basic or an advanced. Most of my colleagues around the world primarily do a basic tabletop, and they really never get more sophisticated than that. That's not a bad thing, but it doesn't really advance the players, the participants, mm. in how to develop a really good experience. And they never really have to get beyond kind of the basic stuff. And so what, I, what, I, what a tabletop does is it'll be usually driven by slides. It might have a few injects, exercise injects are those things that start with a baseline narrative. And then what moves the story forward in the uh, development is an exercise inject, which could be delivered by slides or by phone calls or paper or whatever. 
So that's a tabletop. In an advanced tabletop, you actually have a simulation team in the room um, mm. being very friendly, if you will. But they essentially, whenever they get an inject, they have to go talk to somebody. And that's what they do. They play out the inject. Because, you know, it's one thing if I give you an inject, Craig, and you're sitting there by yourself and you're thinking, well, I would do this or I would do that. Well, you know, that doesn't always work, right? But nobody's saying, mm -hmm. Craig, that's not going to work. So mm -hmm. when you want to advance a player and their abilities, you need to push on them. And so I need a simulator that's going to say, Craig, that's a great idea. We tried that 20 minutes ago. It didn't work. Now what? Right. And you're going to go, oh, my God. Well, I'm looking for the oh, my God moments. Then there's what's called a functional exercise, uh, which is primarily all the injects are delivered by phone. It feels like the real deal. You're in a command center or a virtual space and you are just being inundated. That's what a functional exercise is and it feels real. Hmm. And then the last type of exercise is what's called a full scale, which is where you're deploying to a site. So if you have an alternate site or something like that, in emergency management in the field of government, they do a full functional exercises often. Think of airports doing plane crash exercises or, mm -hmm. you know, and having lots of moulage makeup and people injured and that kind of stuff. That's a full scale exercise, which you actually have field deployment and all the resources deployed. So in our practice, I spend most of my time doing advanced tabletops or functional exercises. People hire us to basically push them. Uh, we right. do, and if people hire us to develop a program for them, we'll actually start with the very basic exercises and move them along into a much more advanced experience. But one of the things I would say to all of your listeners, Craig, is that even if the rest of your life, you're only gonna do a basic tabletop exercise and you're only gonna use a slide deck to tell the story, I would beg you more than anything else to basically at the beginning of the exercise, use the slides to tell the story and tell them what they're going to do. But when you start to deliver injects or you start to push them, stop using a slide projector. You know, if you've ever had a crisis, no one's at the front of the room telling everybody in the room what is yeah. happening. Right. And if you deliver everything by slides, you've defeated the purpose of people having to learn what everybody else does, that they have to communicate with each other, and it really doesn't help your team at all. So it's good at the beginning, don't get me wrong, but stop early on in developing a team because you want them to be capable. You want them to be pushed. That's why you do exercises as a growth experience. So that's really what we do. You know, most, most organizations around the world, particularly in New Zealand and in Australia and America, most organizations in the economy are small enterprises. You know, there might be two to five people. And if you had the opportunity to talk to them, what might be two or three, two or three things that you would ask them to put in place, particularly around cybersecurity, something that they could prepare or even exercise? Right. That's a really great question. So the first thing I would say to them is they must have, first of all, uh, a very effective backup strategy for their computer systems. And this is the big and they need to have a, a actual sequestered backup that is not connected live to a network. So mm -hmm. if you're a small company of 10 people and you've got um, your backup in the, in the cloud, let's say, or you've got another backup as part of your, your drive system, but it's all on the network. Then what can happen with different types of malware is that all of that, all of that backup could be encrypted. So you need to have a quarantine backup that lives off a network that you back up daily, but you immediately disconnect it from the network and it sits, you know, all by itself. 
So that way it, you know that nothing has happened to that. So that would be the like the number one thing I would say to anybody. The other thing I would say for smaller uh, organizations is they need to really think about how they're going to effectively communicate with their employees. Uh, you might say, well, gosh, I've got everybody's mobile phone. But, you know, what if the mobile system goes down? And in many disasters, as we know, you can be in a situation where that happens, where the phones become overloaded. You can't get a hold of people. You don't mm. know what's going on. So it's really good to talk, talk through the kinds of crises that could happen in your area or region. So I think of, you know, Australia, I think of wildfires, you know, and mm. I think of earthquakes and those types of things. You know, certainly from your experience in New Zealand with earthquakes, the earthquake happens, you can't communicate with anybody. That's so right. what is the expectation? Do you expect them that you might, you know, say, okay, 24 hours goes by as if you haven't heard from me, you know, let's meet up at a certain location, uh, assuming mm. that your family is okay and so on. So you need to have plans to be able to connect with people. The other thing I would say is that they need to make sure they have a really good inventory of all of their things. Uh, if they have a, they're a store or some sort of sh uh, shop, you know, or even an office and they've got computers and all that stuff, they better have a really good inventory. And and many times people are too busy to do that. And sometimes the best way that you can do an a simple inventory is to actually take your mobile phone and actually video slowly everything in your office, everything in your area. So you've got kind of a, 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 a virtual record. So if your place burns to the ground and your insurance company says, well, what do you have? You're going to go, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. So those are really important things because, you know, you need to have equipment uh, restored. You need to have a new place. You need all that stuff. But if your place is seriously damaged, you don't have an inventory, then you're making it up and mm. it's really hard and you're already stressed out. So those are really simple things. You have a really good call system, a really good place for backups and where you would meet people, a really, uh, you know, quarantine backup system. And then you have a really effective inventory of all of your possessions uh, by the way, you should do that in your house, too, because <laughs> if you have a fire in your home, it's the same thing. So you want to make sure that you actually have a record of what you actually possess. So those are really simple things that anybody could do very easily. Well, the other That's thing I would just I would just add to that, Craig, and this is what I always tell my clients is that, you know, when you go through a newspaper and you're flipping through the newspaper, you know, there's an exercise on every page. You just don't look at it that way. So it could be an active shooter on one page. It could be an earthquake on another page. It could be a, you know, a water main break on page four. It could be a wildfire on page six. You know, all of those things are very simple ideas. So if you have a small team, you know, bring them together and look at that example and say, wow, let's imagine that this happened here. Mm. What, what would we do? And that is a way to also begin to document what a plan would look like, but also just a simple training that's going to take you a half an hour, maybe not even a half an hour. And those are simple things that all of us can do to be much more effective. And that, frankly, if they're a large company, I tell them to do the same thing. You know, in small business continuity teams, et cetera, just, you know, think a little bit more broadly. Those are really kind of what I almost call a micro exercise or we just call it ripped from the news. Um, I think they're very effective. That's really good. Because I don't often get to speak to someone who's been in the industry for an extended period of time. <laughs> <just that. laughs> an extended period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just you're very, being very kind, uh, Craig. They're not calling me an old fart or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> You've got such a history. So what, you know, you, you would have seen some things develop and change over a period of time. And emergency management. The principles might stay the same, but 
definitely strategies and response strategies have changed over time. If you reflect back, what are some of those major developments that you think have improved or mm. affected how we deal with crisis situations and emergencies? Well, I've been I've been around so long that almost everything that people do now didn't exist when I started. So. <laughs> So I'll just tell you a few things I think that are really important. So when I first started business continuity and it's in its uh, current um, existence wasn't present. The only thing that was really aware people were aware of in the eighties was emergency response and also technology recovery. So let me just uh, draw it for a, a diagram for your uh, listeners in the big field of business continuity management. There's basically four silos, emergency response, which is what you do immediately in the first few minutes or for a first few hours in order to save lives. Second is continuity planning, which is about recovering mission critical time sensitive business processes. The third is technology recovery, which, of course, is standing up again, your servers and your, you know, all of your networks and so on. The fourth is crisis communications. What do you say to all key stakeholders, ideally with templates? And above all of that is crisis management. When I first started years ago, there was only of all of those things, really emergency response, technology recovery, and there was nothing in business continuity. Crisis communications was not really in existence per se, and there wasn't any crisis management at the top. So I've seen all of that develop in my career. And in many cases, mm. I'm a matriarch of some of those things. But I think there's a couple things in particular, I think that have been a huge improvement overall. The first is the incident command system which was born out of my state, California, in the late 70s due to a bunch of wildfires that went poorly. Um, our state became really good at managing crises. And that uh, in 1991, there was a large fire across the bay from, I live in San Francisco, California, across the bay called the Oakland Firestorm. Uh, 3,000 houses burned to the ground, very expensive homes in a very dense urban area. And the state did a really not a very good job of responding. And what they did is they went like, we're not doing this again. And they started to mandate that the incident command system be done in the entire state of California at every level of government. So we got really good at crises. And so then if you fast forward to 9-11, when the federal response wasn't, you know, was really hampered with, you know, all kinds of conflicts, et cetera. After that occurred, the government looked around this country and said, well, who does this well? And they looked to California and they said, oh, we want that ICS, mm. Incident Command System. They then turned it into NIMS. And now that's required in every city, county, state in the United States of, of America. So oh, and that, that wonderful process, that methodology we use in companies all over the world, we modify it slightly to fit more of a corporate culture, but it is a mm. wonderful contribution to crisis management. So I think that's a huge, huge benefit. The second really is the development of business continuity planning. So really the, how you recover mission critical um, departments. There's a lot of change in that area right now, which I think is actually super exciting, making the plans more fluid, making them more responsive. Uh, when it first came out years ago, you would do a business impact analysis and it would have it looked like the Manhattan phone book, you know, it'd be this thick filled with a bunch of charts and graphs. I mean, who cares? I mean, so, so BIAs have really changed where they are becoming much more responsive and not, not a complicated uh, matrix. So that's a huge benefit. And then the plans that come out of those are becoming more flexible. And so I think that's another huge improvement. 
we're not trying to record, you know, history of all time. We're trying to recover critical processes. And so I think if you keep that in mind, uh, you're, you're going to have a, a lighter plan, a lighter program. Mm. It's going to be more versatile and people are going to be more willing to play the game with you. Um, mm. You know, because otherwise, if it's like a big burden, remember that anybody that you engage that's not in this field in a company to help you build a continuity plan or do an exercise. This isn't what they do for a living. It's on top of what they do for a living. Right. So you have to ask yourself, what can I do to make sure that they have what they need in order to recover? But it should be not a painful experience. So I think that's been a huge improvement, too. That's really great. And look, I want to be mindful of your time and I know that you're really busy and a lot of people that you deal with every single day. Just before we wrap up, I'd love for you to share if someone wanted to get into what you do, crisis management, business continuity, what would you suggest they build into their careers? That's a great question. So first of all, I would say I would look for a mentor. I would look for people that are um, like-minded perhaps or somebody that you really think is going to help you. Um, grow and develop. I would, uh, so that's the first thing, look for a mentor. Secondly, if you're not a good public speaker, learn how to do that. So whether that's doing Toastmaster or whatever it might be, but I will tell you that the most effective emergency managers and continuity planners that I see are people that know how to speak well in front of a group. And so practice, practice, practice. Whenever you get a chance, you want to get up and talk because you want to be able to really develop your career, but also you want to be able to communicate a powerful message because we have a lot mm. of powerful things to say, right? Um, I would encourage you to get involved in um, in uh, your professional association. So every country's got some sort of organization that does emergency management and continuity planning. Uh, I think that's super important and contribute to the profession, you know, whether that's write, write, write an article for your local newspaper or write one for your local planning group or maybe do something like that. Uh, the fourth thing I would say is that I would volunteer. Uh, so maybe you belong to a church and they don't have a, a, a you know an emergency response plan. Well, what a great thing you could provide for them and really work with them and do some training for them so they would be better prepared. Because many not-for-profits, we do a ton of pro bono work for not-for-profits because you know my background's in nursing originally and I, I'm always trying to save the world. And so I want them to do well. So you could do the same thing and it would not only be good for them, but frankly, it would be good for you. And then lastly, uh, you know, um, actually two more, two more things. Last, uh, uh, professional education. So whatever, you, you know, ways that you can continue to educate yourself. In, and there's a zillion ways that you can go about that, but that's super important. The, 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 the worst planner I would ever say is the person who thinks that they've seen it all and knows, know it all. So if I if I'm working with somebody and they're in Florida and they're in no they they are getting ready for hurricanes they'll say yeah 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 I know all about hurricanes and like you know that scares me because you're not going to see the next big crisis that comes because you're thinking you've seen it all and then lastly I would say is that I would explore uh, certification um, I'm not saying that that's a that's a must of my list of things but I would say that that's a good thing. So if you belong to the International Association of Emergency Managers, it's a global mm. organization, they have a great certification called a Certified Emergency Manager. I would encourage you to look at that. There's also BCI, Business Continuity Institute out of the UK. They have a, um, a basic and then a master's program and there's DRI as well. So I would encourage you to be certified because again, that, 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 that demonstrates beyond a degree 
that you have this continuing education and you're certified by a association in our field. So that that's would really be it. Great. Yeah, that's really good. We, we're a partner with the International Association of Emergency Oh, great. Yeah, I am is great. Masters. Yeah, they're really, really good. Great current materials, really passionate people like yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Regina, I really want to thank you for your time. It's been great to learn from you today, and I know you're really, really busy. So thank you so much, and thank you for what you do in the profession every single day to make people's lives better. Thank you, Craig. It's been a delight to be with you this morning. Have a great day. Same for you.